I steal your music stand? Well, how do you even begin to approximate following that? I had a two-year-old and, or three-year-old and a kindergartner in that, and that alone will bring tears to your eyes. If you are between the ages of four to the second grade and you're still here, we'd like to ask you to, you're welcome to leave. It's time for a kids club. Uh, if you are not dressed up as a shepherd or many other things, you might already be gone. But if you are still here, it is your time. We have been walking through a three-week series called Seek the King. We're working to intentionally prepare us for the Christmas season, uh, to set our hearts straight, to set our minds straight as we approach the Christmas season. It's, it's easy for all of us to get wrapped up in presents and Christmas lights and food and family and relationships and ribbons and everything this season can be about and miss the King. It's possible we could have a very full and a very meaningful Christmas, and never engage the king. So what we've been walking through is looking at the different responses to the baby Jesus as you look through the different stories. Last week, we took some time. We looked through Matthew. We looked at the wise men. We considered their responses. And this morning, we're going to enter into the Gospel of Luke and to look at the shepherds. So if you'd open your Bibles, if you've got one, uh, if you do not have one, there's a Red Pew Bible in front of you. We'd love for you to take it. It's our gift to you. Uh, if you would open up to Luke chapter 2, I think it's page 857. I wrote that down. As we enter Luke, I want to give you a little bit of background information. One of the, my hopes as we've walked through this is to try to give you a little historical run on some of the uh, Christmas story. But just to give you this on the book of Luke, uh, most po- people do not recognize that Luke was not a disciple. In fact, not only was Luke not a disciple, Luke wasn't even Jewish. And Luke was a Gentile man. He was a Greek, um, came to know the gospel uh, from the ministry of Paul. In fact, Paul becomes his primary source for writing. If you'd like an interesting way of figuring that out, if you read through the gospel, or excuse me, the book of Acts, you'll find that Luke wrote that also. He wrote Luke as the first book, and he wrote Acts as a parallel book to tell the story of the early church. Well, there's a fascinating thing that happens in Acts 16 verse 10. I meant to put it on the slide and I didn't. But you start to see in Acts 16 verse 10, Luke writing this book makes a really interesting transition from they to we. And you start to see Luke entering into the conversation and entering into the missionary journey with Paul and some of their adventures together. Paul or Luke, citing Paul, wrote this gospel. It says in Luke 1, 1 through 4, this is what Luke said. And as much as we have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that we have accomplished among us, just as those who were from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word that has delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all these things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may, be, may have with certainty concerning the things that you have been taught. So Luke sits down and he decides, given everything he's experienced, given everything he's seen with Paul, he, he comes to know a man named Theophilus. And in knowing this man, Theophilus, he now cares enough about this guy to sit down with a pen and write nearly a quarter of the New Testament to this guy. Now that's caring for a guy, to sit down and write that much. But one of the most interesting things about Luke as a Gentile and as a Greek man coming to the New Testament is he was a historian. 
that most of Luke's gospel that gets penned is as a result of him searching out historical fact, meeting with eyewitnesses, and compiling these things into a succinct account. In fact, Sir William Ramsey is an English historian, initially cast off Luke and said he was a worthless historian until he started studying his work. When Sir William Ramsey, Ramsey, at the end of a two-year cycle studying the book of Luke, came out and said that Luke was a world-class historian and, in fact, was able to verify much of Luke's account, so it's a pretty well-received book, critically. Well, Luke writes his gospel to demonstrate the facts, the facts as he saw them, the facts that were presented to him, of who Jesus was. And so when you come to Luke chapter 1 and you get this historical account of Jesus' birth, that's not because he dreamed it up. It's because he met with the eyewitnesses. And what becomes meaningful about that is, is if you accept that this book was written in the mid-60 AD, which it was, all these historical people were still living. So you've got people who could validate, yeah, that is what happened. I was there. Yeah, I did tell him that story. It's true. And so that's one of the early accounts that validate or verify the, reality, the reliability of our Gospels. And so when you come to chapter 2, which is where we'll spend our time this morning, just so as to have a, an understanding that there's some historicity here. So let's consider the shepherds in chapter 2, verses 8. After Jesus has been born, it says in verse 8, in the same region... There were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flocks by night. We got to watch that happen here a couple of minutes ago. We got to watch the shepherds. There were no sheep, but the shepherds were gathered. And this is just some fascinating things for us to consider. Most people don't realize that the shepherds were a social outcast group. That this was a looked down upon group of people. The shepherds were the, among the poorest, most uneducated, uncultured, and uncouth people in that culture. And they had a strong reputation for lying and being untrustworthy. So it's, it's fascinating. You've got these guys who are shepherds who are watching the sheep. And not only are these the untrustworthy, uneducated, poor guys, these are the guys that are pulling the night shift. The reality that these guys were so close to Jerusalem, so close to Bethlehem, that they'd be watching their flocks by night suggests that these guys not only are watching, they're probably not even watching their own sheep. They're probably so poor and uneducated that they work for people who bring the sheep to the temple that those sheep might be sacrificed. So these guys don't even own their own flock. What becomes significant for that is for us to realize when, when Jesus comes into the world and the, the angels show up to declare his glory, God doesn't come to the foremost of society, he goes to the lowly. It's hugely significant for us because these shepherds, though socially outcast, were also ceremonially unclean. In fact, it would take these guys two weeks to become purified in order to even approach the temple, something they'd never have time for. The religious folks considered these guys on the same level as a prostitute. So we have a group of guys that are busy, working at night. They're outcasts. They're unclean inside and out, watching sheep at night when something amazing happens, when something incredibly amazing happens. Now, the fascinating thing about this is a lot of us come here this morning, and, and I don't know what brought you to Calvary this morning. It's possible your child was involved or a niece, nephew, grandparent, uh, 
or you're a grandparent of one of them, and that you could come into this with a lot of busyness, a lot of anxiousness, a lot of anxiety of the world the same way any of us can, and to not appreciate the fact that when God appears into the middle of a dark, deep night, it was bright and it was significant. So in the middle of a day when they had no other plan than watching sheep, in verse 9, an angel of the Lord appeared to them. And if an angel of the Lord was not enough, the glory of the Lord shone all around them. So it wasn't just that God sent an angel to declare his glory, which clearly struck fear into the lives of these guys, which is consistent with what happens when the angel of the Lord shows up throughout the Bible. Zechariah feared, Mary feared. Throughout Scripture, guys are terrified when the angel of the Lord shows up. The glory of God shines all around them. So in the middle of a dark night when these busy men are tending sheep, God shows up. And he shows up in a significant way. He sends a vocal messenger, an angel. And I don't know what that guy looked like, but it had to be terrifying. And the the glory of God, his manifest presence, shows up to reveal himself. And these guys are afraid. As if an angel flying above your field, above your sheep in the middle of the night... With the glory of God showing up, this guy starts to talk. Fear not, for behold. We talked about behold last week. Take into consideration, hold this, that I bring good news of great joy that will be for all of the people. Consider this, the angel says, I bring you good news. This word literally becomes the gospel in Greek. I'm bringing you the gospel. I'm bringing you good news that's filled with great joy. There's a response to this. It's not just, hey, hey guys, something happy won. Our team won. Woo! That it's not happy news. It's, it's news that will change you forever. See, happiness is an emotion. Joy is a, a much more internal expression. And, and these angels telling them that you're going to be filled with joy based on this great news. And it's not just for you. And it's not for the select people. It's for all the people. In the middle of a dark night on a, on a grassy hill where these dirty guys who are social outcasts, hear the gospel. That God walks into their world and reveals himself to them in totality to give them the news. And the angel continues on. He says, For unto you is born this day in the city of David. And he says three really unique things about Jesus. He doesn't just say this is a baby. He says, for unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Now there's a lot of mistaken theology about Jesus, but let's just take for granted here that this angel is talking about God incarnate in the fleshly form of a baby, which seems to exclude any ideology or theology that Jesus would take on Godhood later in life, doesn't it? 
Because when an angel of the Lord, the very mouthpiece of God, presents a baby as the Savior who is Christ the Lord, it says something. That this baby is the Savior. The reality of a Savior suggests that he's here to save us. He's going to be the great deliverer. The deliverer that's spoken of in the Old Testament. The deliverer that's predicted in the Old Testament. And for us to be a deliverer, we have to appreciate we're in slavery. For him to deliver us. And to be a social outcast who wasn't even clean enough to approach the temple to understand that there would be a deliverer who came specifically for you has got to be huge news. But he's not just the Savior. He's the Christ. From the Greek word, which means the anointed one. He is the Messiah. So he's not just a deliverer, he is the Messiah, the one who's been anointed from the beginning to come and resurrect Israel, to put it all back together. This man is the Messiah, and he's the king. Long before they acknowledge that this is a baby, he's described as the Savior, the Messiah, and the king. What are we going to do with that this Christmas? It, it's nice for us to put a baby on hay in, in a manger. It's a pretty picture for us to consider. But, but sometimes if we don't ever move past that, we mute the reality that he's a savior. We mute the reality that he's the Christ. We mute the reality that he's the king. We, we make it an easy thing for us to consider, oh, there's a baby. Babies are nice. They're playful. They're joyous. This one doesn't cry. It's the best kind. And we strip the reality of who he was. This angel, the mouthpiece of God, declares significant things about this baby, significant things that Luke will continue throughout the rest of his book, his gospel, to declare and unfold and unwrap. But this angel gives him a sign, and this will be a sign for you, that you will find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. This angel says, you know, the reality that that I've shown up, the reality that the glory of the Lord is here, if that's not enough for you, if, if you need more than just my spoken word, if, if you need more than my testimony, let me just tell you that if you go looking, you're going to find a baby that's wrapped up in little swaddling clothes. This idea, these little pieces of cloth that are torn off, that are used to prepare a body for burial, that'd be unusual to find a baby wrapped like that. But not only that, you're going to find him lying in a manger, another really strange place to find a baby. So I want to authenticate this message to you by telling you what happened. Now historically, you got to keep your mind running through the history of this. Because somewhere in here, you got to appreciate when Luke pens this in the mid-60s, some of these guys were still alive. Some of these guys could quickly stand up and go, that's not what he said to us. That is not what happened. And yet we have no historical account of that at all. In fact, we find these guys to be a bunch of loudmouths. 
which is awesome for the kingdom. He provides a sign, a very specific sign to authenticate the message. And if, for a group of dirty guys standing on a hill that God sends his messenger to, and God's glory shows up, and then a sign is given, if that's not enough for these guys to understand what they're dealing with, in verse 13, it gets bigger. Because verse 13, suddenly, there was a multitude of angels next to what most people suspect is Gabriel hanging in the sky declaring the gospel to a group of shepherds, all of a sudden God's army shows up. Now I don't know if you've ever considered how big a multitude is, but you get into myriads of myriads. Myriad could be a thousand, so you could get into thousands of thousands. So there could roughly be 100,000 angels hanging out behind Gabriel at this moment. And they bust out singing. A whole heavenly choir begins to sing over and over and over again, glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. Glory to God. These angels exalt God, glory to God, and declare the message of peace, that on earth he's come to bring peace with those in whom he's pleased. God is really interested in authenticating himself to these people. In fact, you only find one other time in the Bible when a myriad of angels sing, and it's in Isaiah 6, 3, when Isaiah is given a vision of the king, the throne room, and he's able to enter in, and he sees a myriad of angels singing, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is filled with his glory. God presents himself to this group of shepherds, a group of lowly outcast men, and provides his mouthpiece. And perhaps, when you became introduced to God, he showed up this way. It's possible that when, you, when God introduced himself to you, you saw myriads of angels and you, you heard the heavens sing. But I bet it's not true for most of us. I remember being a sophomore in high school and hearing the gospel of Jesus Christ for the first time in my life and realizing there was something I had to do about it that you couldn't just sit on the information and not respond. And I remember starting to pray. And in my mind, I wanted the heavens to just tear open and angels to start singing. I kept thinking, Lord, if you're real, just like make this true for me. Open up the sky and let your angels sing and I'll know that you're real. What sign are you giving me? And it's interesting because for a while that kind of bothered me. I, I wanted my own choir of angels. I wanted something to declare the truth of the Lord to me. Instead, God sent a man in his mid-40s named Kim Talley. We can make fun of him. It's a man named Kim. I get it. More ironically, Kim was also married to a Kim, which made answering their phone really strange. But Kim Talley declared the Lord to me. 
He told me the truth. He put it before me, and he used his life as the example. He was able to talk about what the gospel had done in his life. He was able to illustrate, much like Kip illustrated a minute ago, how the gospel had made a difference in his life, about how in deep, dark, hard nights, Jesus had walked with him, and about times of hopelessness, Jesus had shown up and and cared for him, about how when he felt totally and radically alone, he found Christ in those moments. And God authenticated the message to me. And he used Kim Talley to share it with me over and over again. And to authenticate it with his life. See, there's something significant that's happening in the midst of this story. And that these guys are presented with the gospel. Albeit in a magnificent way. But a response is required. Last week we looked at the wise men. These men from Orient Far who, by the way, showed up probably two years after Jesus was born. These guys searched the scriptures. They found out about it, and they sought the king. And they go to the religious types, the people whose lives are together, the people who have everything nailed down, and they show up in King Herod's office, and they present, we've been searching your scriptures. This is what we found. And King Herod's response is, you know, I've got too much going on. I'm too busy. So King Herod pulls together the scribes and the priests, these guys who study the Bible all day, and they are able to think, yeah, he is coming. It's going to come in Bethlehem, and he tells it to us. And, and last week, we, we had the opportunity to consider the examples of King Herod, who was too selfish and too into himself, couldn't move past his own agenda to acknowledge the king. And when we looked at the chief priests and the scribe, guys who were too busy doing religious things to acknowledge the king. And we looked at the different responses, how these guys who it doesn't make sense that they'd pursue the king, they overcome all these obstacles to pursue Jesus, and they do. And this week we have the opportunity to consider these shepherds, these social outcast people who by all social means necessary are not worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. They haven't done everything right. They haven't nailed it. They don't even own a checklist because if they did, it'd be worthless. And God reveals himself to them on a really dark night. God makes himself known. So what will they do? When the angels went away, verse 15, from them into heaven. By the way, when I get to heaven, these are the kind of things I'm going to throw in the heavenly DVD player and watch replays of. This and Jesus ascending into heaven in Acts 1. When the angels went away from them into heaven and the shepherds said to one another, let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. Let's go check this out. Let's walk over there. Let's see what we're do- Let's see what happened. Let's go and get involved in it. But you know, they might have just been saying, "Let's see this sign. Maybe I need to see more. Let's see if what God has said is true." So they go over to Bethlehem. Verse sixteen, and they went with haste. And they found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And they found the sign which had been declared to them. This morning, you're left with the reality of what are you going to do with the gospel? 
As we walk through this Christmas season, there's so many realities and things we can make our lives focus on. We can consider, we can focus our lives on Christmas presents and Christmas lights and Christmas turkeys and, and who's coming over on what day and what day we're going to so-and-so's house and how that works out. We can get so busy that we miss the king. We can get so busy that we miss the entire reason for the season. And we miss the king. These shepherds sought him. They looked for God to authenticate the sign. In verse 17, and when they saw it, when they saw that what Jesus, had, what this angel had said, when they saw that it had become true, that, that what God was doing was making himself known to man, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning the child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds had told them. These shepherds go and they, they seek out this baby. They find him in a manger. And we don't really know a lot about what that scene looks like. All we do know is that these guys walk away from this and they cannot stop talking about what God had declared to them as true. They can't stop talking about this experience where God had revealed himself to them and they told everyone according to this text, for unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. They made known what the angel had said to them. They took their experience with God and they used it as their testimony. See, there are so many things we can do about Christmas. We can make it about so many things. And this Christmas season, let's make it about declaring that he is the Savior, that he is the Messiah, and that he is the King. Let's not, as a church, miss the opportunity to give testimony for what God has done in our lives, for how God has revealed himself to us, for God, how God has authenticated himself in our own lives and our own experiences, where we too can testify to how God carries us through hardship, how God has walked us through loneliness, how God has removed us from some of the sinful patterns we've struggled with. Let's not stop talking about Jesus. Verse 19, Mary treasured up these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen and had been told to them. This Christmas season, you have a lot of choices to make about what you want your season to be like. I challenge you to seek the king, to make it about Jesus, to pursue him in his word, to pursue him in his testimony, and to be like these shepherds who didn't just receive it, but couldn't stop talking about it. And we have that unique opportunity when we gather in all kinds of settings where we'll publicly proclaim Christmas to declare him Savior, Messiah, and King through the very experiences that he gave us, just like these shepherds. They sought the king, they made known the king, and they worshiped the king. Let me pray. Father, we love you.
we love you so much. And we are so thankful for the work of Jesus. We always thank you for the work of the cross. And Father, we thank you that you sent your son from a very comfortable place in heaven to be born into this world, to be born as a baby, and to lie in hay. And Father, even from the beginning, your son was acknowledged as the Savior, the King, and the Messiah because he was. Father, as these angels have acknowledged who you are, how they've used it as a platform to declare who you are, Father, may this holiday season, would we not be like Herod who was too caught up in his own agenda or the chief priests and scribes who were too busy with religious things. May we be like these shepherds who declare with their mouths and their voices the greatness of what you've done in their lives. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.